is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast, picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast series where I speak to professional investors. And we discuss how they approach investments and how they pick winners and avoid losers. And the idea is to find those golden nuggets from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Peter Armitage. He's the founder of Anchor Capital. He founded the company back in 2012 and is currently the CEO. He is a chartered accountant and he started his career in global financial markets way back in 1994. He has worked as an analyst, head of research and as a chief investment officer at several of South Africa's top financial institutions, including Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, NetBank and Investec. The anchor group currently has assets under management of more than 100 billion rand. And it serves more than 15,000 clients. Peter, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for your time. Let, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and when did you decide you wanted a career in asset management? Hi, Rick. Uh, I grew up in Boxburg, right? And but managed to find my way to Durban um, about 10 years later. I did a CIA in Durban. I wasn't very familiar with the stock markets back then. In Durban, it's not really, uh, you know, it's more of a Joburg type thing. And once I came out of it, uh, once I finished my CIA, I kind of discovered it, thought it was something I could do and gained an absolute fascination for markets, how they work, the ability to make money. So how old were you when you bought your very first share? And what was that share? 25, probably, right? So I started quite late. Um, I didn't have any money before then. I was kind of borrowing money rather than being able to invest. And I think my first share was Nuspers. And I'm embarrassed to say that I bought it probably at around 20 or 30 rand. Because uh, if I hadn't sold it along the way, I'd probably be in Mauritius and not on this phone call with you. And at what price did you sell it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've bought and sold it many times along the way. But it's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, what is that? That's a thousand bagger. Those days, it was making all of its money out of the Heskinet and U magazine. Naspas was also the very first share I bought. I was in Standard 8. Uh, I was delivering newspapers, so when it listed, I bought the shares. And when I sold out at 43 Rand, I thought I made a killing. <laughs> I, I think and you I, had. I bought it at 12 Rand, if I remember correctly. And uh, I used it as a deposit on my house, so that is probably the most expensive house I've ever bought. But anyway... Tell us about your approach to investments, especially initially. Why did you start to invest and, and, and what was your goal at that stage? So, Rake, I mean, back in those early days, you're just trying to make a quick buck. You know, I think the key is for people to learn about the long-term impact of compounding and start early. Um, but when I look back to my early days, it was, you know, just doing some trades. I think the, the interesting thing about investment is... You know, if you if you take a standard career and invest 20% of your savings at the start of your career, by the end of it, you know, 70, if you, if you compound it at kind of 12 to 15% per annum, uh, by the time you retire, 80% of your wealth will have been created by your investing returns and 20% by your salary, less your expenses. So, you know, I, I think that the fascination and why we wake up and get very excited about investment 
is that if you've got some money and you can get it compounding, it can do the work for you. Um, so instead of selling your hours, the way I, I quite like to look at the stock market is I can employ any chief executive officer on the whole market. I can hire him in a minute and fire him in a minute. And if you know he's have him working 14 hours a day for me instead of me doing it. I happen to also be working those hours, you know, because we're building a business. But it's a, it's a fascinating concept that you can get money to work. Um, and if you're in the, the right investment, uh, you know, you, you really want to try and find those things that can compound at 20%. And the impact of that is phenomenal. You know, the, the, very simply, if your money goes up at 15% a year for five years, you've doubled it. If it goes up at 20% a year, you've doubled it in four years. You know, so if you take a four, eight, 12, 16-year period, it's double, 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 double. You know, after 20 years, you five times your money. But how many investors actually achieve capital growth of between 15 and 20% consistently? When you look at the fund fact sheets of many asset managers, the, the predictions are a lot more conservative. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm not. Uh, it's pro- you know, it's, it's not realistic to expect 20% per annum. But uh, you know, if you look at the ultimate growth assets, quality, low-risk growth asset in the world, that would be the U.S. stock market, and that over most reasonable time periods has gone up by eight to ten percent per year in dollars, including dividends. And the rand has tended to weaken by four to five percent per annum. So, you know, those things can move in opposite directions and it's, you know, there's no straight line. There's, there's very few years when it's actually done 8 to 10%. It usually does minus 5 or naught, and then 20% the next year. You know, it's not a straight line. But if you take that 8 to 10% in dollars and some add some RAND weakness, if you're a patient quality investor in U.S. shares, it's not unreasonable to achieve 12 or 13% per annum in RANDs. So, you know, it's not a dream to be able to achieve those returns. A lot of people, um, you know, and I've certainly made those mistakes where you're trying to get 30% a year, you take too many risks, and you land up losing money in a year. Our, our investor focus is very much on growth. If something's worth 100 and it's growing at 15% a year, in five years' time, it's worth 200. Uh, the value investor would look at, you know, something's worth 100, they can buy it at 50 the value doesn't go up, so it's only worth 120 in five years. So you, you might go from 50 to 80. There's just so much more upside and so much more optionality being invested in something with the growth equation. Against that, then, you've obviously got to buy it at the right price. And there's many great businesses that people have overpaid for, and despite the fact that they're growing, they don't make money. So that's, you know, investing is an arts and a science. You can do all the numbers. You can do all the spreadsheets. But one of my favorite sayings is the market doesn't know what your spreadsheet says. And that's kind of where the, the art comes in, is getting a feel for when, you know, you want to be invested in these great companies, but when to buy them and, you know, when to stick around. I think most asset managers would uh, echo your sentiments, but how do you approach companies that you believe offer significant value, but just does not perform? Over the past decade, especially in South Africa, we've seen fantastic companies trading at all-time uh, low multiples. And but they just do not recover. It's a sort of a value trap. How patient should you be, and when do you think should you actually pull a trigger and sell out of an underperforming share and trying another one? Yeah, that's a golden question, isn't it? Um, yeah, and that's I think where a bit of the art comes into it. 
I think probably one of the most important things is to be able to look at things afresh. Uh, one of the exercises I always do. In other words, what I'm saying is, so if something hasn't done well in the past year or has done well in the past year, try and not let that influence your investment decision today. So one of the things I always do is on a Monday morning at 8 o'clock, try and spend a few hours going, let's assume I don't own any shares. You know, what would I put in a brand new portfolio today? And that's probably the, the, the first part of the answer to that is, um, you know, you often have, have uh, because something's in your portfolio, you bought it and it hasn't gone up, uh, you know, you feel you have to own it. Whereas, in fact, you know, every day you, you, you're making a new buy decision to hold a share. You're going, I've, you know, I'm consciously keeping my money invested in that company to get a future return. Mm. One of the things, uh, you know, when things are pretty cheap, um, so like the SA market at the moment, we tend to have a bit more of a bias towards things that are paying a dividend. So if it doesn't feel like the whole market's going up, um, so what's a high dividend share? Let's say APSA, it's got a, about a 9% dividend yield. So at the moment, the future, the short-term future is very uncertain. Uh, you know, the, the whole interest rate, US, Fed, Russia, Ukraine, there's a million things to worry about. Um, and, you know, you haven't got that natural momentum behind the market. In fact, the momentum has been downward. But if APSA can buy a share at a 6 PE multiple, so it's very cheap, um, but maybe it's a 6 PE multiple in a year's time. Uh, if that's the case, I'll get 10% capital, but I've got a 9% dividend. So no matter what, I'm banking and receiving in cash 9% of my capital. So, I mean, we very much bottom-up investors. We want to buy in quality-growing companies, mm. but you can't ignore the overall market and where the market's heading and the momentum and the flows. You know, So there's lots of macro stuff we look at. Yeah. But ultimately, I'm not buying indexes. I'm not buying economies. You know, I'm not buying Fed rate increases. I'm buying uh, businesses that generate cash. And if they give some of that cash back to me, I'm happy about it. Having said that, you know, if you're in a really nice kind of global growth company that gets a very high return in its own capital and, the, you know, the stock market momentum, um, if they can invest their money at a 20% return, as we both discussed, it's very difficult to get that. I'm very happy to leave management with that cash to reinvest and continue growing the business. So it's, you know, different times and in different markets, there's slightly different approaches. Uh, but our best case is... Uh, a U.S. company that can grow at 15% that I can buy at a 15 to 20p multiple, nine times out of 10, you're going to make some good money out of that. Do you still manage or have a personal investment portfolio? Yes. Yeah, I think it's very important for guys like us to have our own portfolios because you've got to feel the joy. When you guys join us, I want them to buy and sell shares. They must feel the joy of making money and the pain of losing money because that's ultimately what happens with our clients? Um, you know, we invested across all of our funds and, and you've got to put your money where your mouth is. A lot of um, stock market discipline is, is learned by, you know, your behavior and your emotions and psychology. And, and I think a lot of that you only get by owning something personally yourself. Is the strategy you follow for your personal portfolio significantly different to the strategy you follow with the management of your collective investment schemes or unit trusts? Because when you lose money in your own portfolio, you take the hit. 
but the money invested in the unit trusts is normally people's savings, uh, their life savings. And your success in managing those funds is directly correlated to the quality of life those investors will enjoy post-retirement. No, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I think typically we'd be more conservative in a fund. In my own name, I'm prepared to take a bit more risk. It's my personal decision and... You know, I can buy something that I'm, if, if I lose money on it, it's not the end of the world. If somebody's in a fund with a, uh, with a long-term objective, we're typically going to be a lot more conservative. Rule one is don't lose capital. Um, you know, that's what we, we try and do first and foremost. And also funds tend to have a mandate and an objective. So people buy into it wanting an outcome either relative to a benchmark or on an absolute basis. So you know, we've got over 30 funds across our group. And the important thing is that investors get what's on the tin. So if it's a, in our global technology fund, it's global technology shares. So by definition, it was did incredibly well two years ago and has done very badly this year because that's what that sector's done. What we attempt to do there is do better than the global technology sector. But in our core income fund, which is getting 7.5% per annum, we certainly wouldn't take any risk with that. And that will generate... 73 to 7.6% per annum. So it's uh, funds and personal investments are very different. Can you give us a few names of companies that are in your personal portfolio? I really like the Nasper story. I think it's very cheap. It's driven by 10 cent and there's just some amazing maths behind it now that they can sell 10 cent shares because they're, they're selling an asset at 100 rand and on the same day buying back pretty much that same asset at 50 rand. And they're going to do that for the next three years. In the international markets, a quality portfolio of U.S. tech companies. Uh, they're all pretty cheap now. Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet. You know, when, when the whole market is very cheap, you don't need to be fishing around for poorer quality businesses. And if big, good, you know, fast-growing international businesses are cheap, I'm very happy to just compound offshore. Locally, um, a, a share that I really like is Stadio. It's quite difficult to find growth companies in South Africa because a lot of them aren't listed. Um, and South Africa is a low GDP growth environment. But yeah, you've got a business which is distance learning, so not much capex, very high margins, 40% margins, all, all in cash. And they're growing their student numbers by 10 to 15% a year. And a lot of that is coming from taking market share from UNISA, um, which appears to be under a bit of pressure. It's a small cap, but it'll make 200 million rand profit after taxes here. It's not a, not a inconsequential business, but I think they can grow their earnings by more than 20% a year for quite a few years. So, you know, we were talking at the beginning, where do we find that 20%? And so if I can find that combination, we find that quite exciting. What do you think of companies like Renogen and the Purple Group? Sure, very. Couldn't get two more different businesses, but they're also growth businesses, um, and they've been performing well. Renogen is a project. It's one LNG, gas, and helium project uh, in the Free State. They've launched their Phase One, which is about ten percent of the total plan, and they're building the rest over the next three years. So you know, it's a very. It's not a cash flow business growing at 20% a year. It's a, it's a project with project risks, 
one of the keys is, you know, what is the helium and LNG gas price in four years' time once they're fully operational? And you can do a spreadsheet and work out the value of it. The Central Energy Fund has just been prepared to value the share at about 67 rand. They have invested money on that basis. So that's quite high risk because of the nature of the business. Um, but it's got some quite nice upside. But it's, uh, it's far from being a classic compounding cash flow business. It's almost exactly the opposite. Purple Group is an interesting one. We kind of have some overlap with their business in that we invest people's money and buy and sell shares for them. Uh, they've gone for the, the kind of mass retail market. I think they've got like over a million users. Um, you know, so you've got to choose what market segment you want. You know, we want to invest people's money and focus on high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals and institutions. They're looking to trade shares. So, for example, you know, I run an investment business, but my son's got an easy equities account because they've invested in the technology and created something that's suitable for him in his market segment. There's two things, you know, how big is the market and what share can they get? They don't really have a hell of a lot of competition in what they're doing. I think they've kind of, you know, the top of the pops there. Uh, but I mean, a big threat to them is the is the liquidity on the JSC and the number of uh, companies. And and if the market's down, people tend to trade a lot less. So these companies globally tend to the shares tend to do well when the market's going up and doing nicely, and people want to invest. When the market's under pressure, uh, they come under a bit of pressure. Now for the big question: What was your best investment ever? And conversely, what was your worst investment ever? Sure, I should have uh, had some time to think about this before. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think of a particular share. I think if I, I think if you go back to 2008, when the markets took a real crash and people just wrote off uh, investments and there were shares trading at two or three PE multiples. Um, so I remember buying some Pinnacle shares and some Sipler shares. Uh, the pinnacles, if I remember correctly, were kind of four odd rand, and today are twenty rand. And the Sipler Sipler went down to one rand, one rand fifty, and I think it got delisted a few years later, ten rand. So you know, those are the really in your career you get a few of those when you get a share that goes up five to ten times. I always like in my portfolio in a fund to have at least a little bit of money invested in the things where if it goes right, you know, it can make a real difference. Worst investment? I, I think as opposed to an individual thing, it's more a, more about a theme and that's over gearing. So, you know, when I was much younger, I'm talking you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, you, you get over exuberance when you realize you can borrow money on a CFD and you can put down 10 Rand and buy 100 Rand of shares. Uh, and when it's working, it's it's amazing. Uh, but when it goes against you, you can get wiped out pretty quickly. So, you know, going through a phase, and I think it also dates back to that kind of 2007, 2008 phase, is uh, the worst investment was losing money pretty quickly when the market crashed um, because you borrowed somebody else's money to, to do it. So one needs to do that very prudently, and, and I'll kind of leave that to professional investors. And... Then lastly, what advice would you have for amateur investors, people who want to have some skin in the game because they want to learn, uh, but also build a wealth portfolio? And, and, and what do you think are the biggest mistakes these retail investors make? Yeah, so I think 
the advice would be to start early, you know, get money working for you. We were talking earlier about doubling every five or six years. Buy into quality stuff, you know, especially now when things are cheap. You don't need to fish around in, in small cap companies which are uncertain. Um, and I think a lot of retail investors and younger investors lose their boots and lose their appetite because they, they're trying to find the next big thing. Um, I would start off being in high quality, bigger companies and letting those compound for you. Um, so don't start off playing around in, in high risk shares. So I think a lot of young people, the 18 to 25 year olds, lost a huge amount of money in the tech boom because they got caught up in that, in that rally. So I would say form a base of high quality companies. And if you want to play around with a bit more risky stuff, do that at the margin, as opposed to that being your kind of core investment philosophy. And what mistakes do you think people make? Not investing in good quality stuff, but being greedy and going for the high risk uh, counters. Yeah. And then gearing up where you can, you know, if you get up 10 times, you can lose your money in a heartbeat. Um, so that's probably, you know, and I've seen people destroyed with that. And, and make sure you diversify it. The best company in the world can have bad news and something unanticipated could happen to it. So, you know, don't have more than 10% of your portfolio in any one share, I would say. That was Peter Armitage, the founder and CEO of Anchor Capital. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, Be a Better Investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.